Welcome to Living Faith, the podcast ministry of the First Baptist Church of Avon Park, Florida. Living Faith features the preaching and teaching ministry of First Baptist Church from our Sunday morning and evening services, as well as our Wednesday night Bible studies for students. First Baptist Church exists to glorify God by proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ so that the lost might be saved and the Christian might be equipped. God's primary tool for this kind of growth is the regular preaching and teaching of His Word. That's why here at First Baptist, our prayer echoes that of the psalm. Above all else, God's Word and God's name should be exalted. This is our new Sunday evening series entitled, What is the Church? Our theme tonight is indeed the same theme as that song uh, that Joy ended on, People Need the Lord. And people do need the Lord, not only at the end of their broken dreams, but because we're born in a state of fallenness, of uh, rebellion against God and his will and his law. And we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight, that people need the Lord, why they need the Lord, and how we can introduce them to the Lord, what God has called his church to do. This is part of our continuing series that we've been doing on Sunday nights called What is the Church? And if you take a look there at our church's emblem, you can see the Bible, which we discussed, our our stance on the Word of God. Two weeks ago, we were uh, celebrating the Lord's Supper, so we talked about the Lord's table with the cup and the bread. Tonight, um, we're going to go straight to that globe and talk about what our mission is as an evangelical, evangelistic, missional church and what that means for us. Various mission statements exist for churches. If you go on the, the web, if you know how to Google and all those things, you can just church, uh, just search church vision statement and just see all the various things that will pop up. Everything from uh, you know, a relevant gathering of believers and, and relevant seems to be the word nowadays. Relevant, authentic, relational, real, uh, those are the key words. And you can find any number of purpose statements that churches have. If you look up philosophies of church ministry, You'll find any number of church ministries and church philosophies and things that churches think they should be doing in their community and in their local church to reach the lost. There are people that say this way is the correct way and this way is the correct way. And if you're not doing this program, you're missing out on something that could grow your church. When I I got here to First Baptist a little over a year ago and I had my official church email address set up, pastormat at fbcap.net. Apparently people are tapped into that, uh, that email address as a marketing ploy, and there's not maybe a week that goes by and I don't get an email from someone claiming, if you'll invite me to your church and, of course, pay for me to do the program and distribute my materials, you will double your church attendance in less than a year. I mean, every week, and maybe not every week, maybe every other week, at least twice a month, I get an email from a different person, a different ministry, a different program, a different person with a different philosophy or ministry or vision of what can really grow the church. So we're left with the question, what is the mission of the church? Not even talking about philosophies of ministry, but what is our mission? The word mission comes to us from the Latin word missio. And that simply means sending. When we talk about someone's mission, it means they're sending, why they are sent. The sending they have, the call and the reason for which they are sent is the mission of that person. So a missionary is someone that is sent. So what is the reason, the purpose for which we are sent? When we look at that, it reveals what our mission should be as the church And uh, this will come as no surprise to you uh, now that you've turned to Matthew chapter 8. Our mission as a local church can be nothing more and nothing less than the Great Commission. The mission itself that Jesus gave us. In fact, if any church's vision or mission statement or philosophy of ministry lacks that central teaching of the Great Commission that we're going to read tonight, they have ceased to become a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. If there's no heart for reaching out through evangelism and witnessing and ministry and proclaiming the gospel freely to all who will listen, that church is failing in this key significant area that Jesus said we should be succeeding in. When he left this earth, he gave one charge to his disciples before the Holy Spirit came. You wait for the Holy Spirit. When he comes, you will be my witnesses in Judea and Jerusalem and Samaria to the uttermost ends of the earth. Go into all the world as we're going to read. Preach the gospel to every creature. 
That is the mission of the church. So let's turn our attention to Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 16. This, of course, at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus has uh, been crucified, buried, and risen. And now we see his last words to his disciples. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pause and pray before we continue. God, this is your word. Your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, living word. I ask that as we turn our attention to these words tonight, the words of your son, Jesus, delivering the mission to us that you gave to him, that you would open our eyes to the reality of the call that you have placed on every believer's life and the call and the vision and the mission that you have given us as a local church to go and make disciples of all nations starting right here in our own Jerusalem. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Speak now for your servants are listening. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So what is the mission of this church? What is the mission of First Baptist Church of Avon Park, Florida? What is the mission of any local church? What is the mission, the commission that we have been given from our Lord? How are we to respond to what he has done for us? How are we to act in our community, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our world? What is the mission, the reason that we have been sent? If all we do in our church is experience a sort of spiritualized country club, which many churches around the nation frankly have become, we have the nice music, we here are blessed with beautiful facilities, as, is, as are many other churches. We have people that teach us and people that talk to us, and we have friends here, and we come together for Sunday school and fellowships, and we eat together, and we pray, pray together, and we enjoy good times around coffee and donuts, and then we go to Sunday school, and then we come and enjoy nice music. And then we hope that whoever's going to come and fill the pulpit will be a little bit entertaining to us and will hold our attention to the end and we'll say some good things and tell some good stories and be funny. And hopefully we'll leave here having experienced some modicum of spiritual reality from God. But even if not, you know, we do things well. And we do do church well here at First Baptist Church. And many churches do church well But if that's all we are here to do, is to sit and to enjoy and to receive and to fellowship, you can do that at your local Rotary Club or your local lodge or whatever people are involved in nowadays. Any social club can do nice things for people. Any social club can reach out with community events and and good things that help people get off drugs and alcohol and, and things that help people recover from any number of addictions or there's any number of secular organizations that will feed the, feed the hungry and give shelter to the homeless and clothe the poor. You don't need churches to do those things. You don't need Christians to do those things. So what makes us different as a church What sets apart this building from any other beautiful building in which people gather that makes this not a social club, that makes this not a rotary club or a country club or just a nice little addition to our life that's spiritual in nature and makes us feel better about ourselves and a little more American? What's different about us? The mission of the church is to be equipped so that we can go and make disciples of Jesus Christ in our community and around the world. So now that I've said that, let's just dissect that mission with three things. Three questions we're going to ask ourselves about the mission of the church. If the mission of the church is to go and make disciples, to be equipped and to go and make disciples, first of all, who? Whose mission is this? Who does it come from? And to whom has it been given? Number two, we're going to ask what? We know what the mission is. We're going to ask what the content of the mission is. And number three, how. 
How is this mission to be accomplished? We know we're supposed to go and make disciples, to be equipped, to learn, to go and make disciples of all nations, starting right here in our own neighborhood, in our own community. So how is this mission accomplished? So let's start with number one. I've read to you the Great Commission already. With that as the foundational scripture that we're going to look at tonight, Matthew chapter chapter 28, 19 through 20, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. Keep that in the forefront of your mind. As we continue tonight. But while your finger is there and your mind is there, turn over to Romans chapter 1. I'm using leftover water again. I don't think he drank out of it. He's all right. Maybe I'll get some of his uh, Georgia accent and preach better. Right there in verse 1 of Romans chapter 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Stop. First and foremost, the gospel, the good news, is the property of God. The gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ does not come to us as a matter of human invention. When someone hears the gospel of Jesus Christ or that Christianity is the only exclusive way of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the good news that he brings, when someone hears that and responds, well, that's fine for you, that's good for you, that might be true for you, but it's not true for me, or maybe they think that we're bigoted or somehow prejudiced because we think that Jesus is the only way and Buddhism cannot lead to heaven or Islam cannot lead to heaven or Judaism apart from Jesus Christ cannot lead to heaven. That's your way. That's your interpretation. That's your good news. We see here that it does not originate with us. It does not start with us. We are not its source. We are not its author. We did not invent it. We did not create it. It is not the invention of Paul or Peter or any other, any other of the apostles. It's not their invention. It doesn't originate from them. It originates from the mind and the purpose and the sovereign will of God. He is the author, he is its source, he is its founder, its foundation, its architect, its accomplisher, its applicator. He is everything. God is the source and the end of the gospel. That's what Paul intends to say right here in Romans chapter 1 verse 1. With no apologies, I, Paul, have been set apart for the gospel of God. When you look at that translation literally in the Greek, it's only two words. Gospel and then a form of God that literally applies it to possessive It means that, God's gospel. I've been set aside for God's good news. Number two, the gospel is Trinitarian. That's a big word. Um, Obviously coming to us from the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity. You've got what people, you have to watch out for what people believe and teach about the Trinity. Uh, We're not talking about cults here, uh, Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses that deny the Trinity in some way or another. We're talking about some supposed Christians who look like evangelical Christians, who act like evangelical Christians, and if you were to be in their worship service, they would seem like evangelical Christians. I'm speaking here of oneness or apostolic Pentecostals. They're not the Pentecostals like the Assemblies of God or the Churches of God or most regular Orthodox Pentecostal churches. The oneness, or sometimes called apostolic Pentecostal churches, reject the doctrine of the Trinity and they say that God is only one person who has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Though all three of those do not exist at the same time. It is only one person named Jesus who was the Father, who became the Son, and who is now acting as the Holy Spirit. But it's only one person. The historic Christian definition of the Trinity is that we have one God who eternally exists in three persons simultaneously at one time. So that there is the Father who is God, the Son who is God, the Holy Spirit who is God. But there is no confusion of the persons. The Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Father. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son. The Spirit is not the Father. The Father is not the Spirit. All the way around. All three share the nature of God. What's funny? What did I say? All three are equally God, but they are not to be confused with each other. The reason that is so important is because when we look at the gospel, even what Paul has said here, just keep on going. The gospel of God, verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, 
who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So, first of all, the gospel is God's. It's God's gospel. It belongs to him. He's he's its author and its source and its originator. Secondly, it's obvious there that the gospel is about Jesus, the Son. It's third there in your points. The gospel is about Jesus, the Son. Right there in verse 3, concerning or regarding his Son. The gospel belongs to God, and the gospel is about Jesus. Now, we'll see later the content of all that means. And then third, uh, fourthly there, the gospel comes to us through the Spirit. What Paul calls the spirit of holiness could literally be translated simply the Holy Spirit. So the gospel originates with God the Father. It is his good news. It is about his son Jesus and it comes to us through the power and the working of the Holy Spirit. We'll also talk about that more later in the how. Now you don't have to turn to Genesis 1. Just think about it in your head. It's very easy. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And the spirit or the breath of God hovered over the face of the deep. Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, John 1, Colossians 2. They all tell us that Jesus Christ, the son, created everything that there is. Colossians 1 and 2 tells us he's before all things. Through him everything was made. Hebrews 1 says that he shares in the radiance of his father's glory. John chapter 1 tells us through him all things were made and without him not anything was made that is made. He has life and light. That's the Son. So if we put those two together, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus was the agent of creation. He was the one that was doing the work of creation, while the Father was the planner and the architect of creation. And then even there in Genesis 1, we see the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the deep. So put all that together and we see the father planning and being the architect and designer of creation. We see the son carrying it out. And then we see the Holy Spirit who is hovering over the mass, energizing it with the power of God and preparing it for the creation of the son by the will of the father. All three persons of the Trinity working in perfect harmony, though notice not doing the same thing. They each have their role and they each do it willingly for each other. That's the way the Trinity works. The gospel. How does that apply to the gospel? If any man is in Christ, you fill in the blanks. He is a new creation. Literally, he takes part in the new creation. This is what Jesus means in Revelation when he says, Behold, I make all things new. There's a recreation that's happening This morning, Brother David talked about one of my favorite theological concepts, and that is that Jesus is the second Adam. He comes to restore what Adam lost. Adam messed up everything, Jesus fixes everything. Through Adam we have nothing but death and unrighteousness, and through Jesus we have righteousness and salvation. Jesus is the second Adam who, unlike the first Adam, succeeds in that dominion that God gave him and starts a new creation through the gospel and the kingdom of God. This is the new creation. And even though we look forward to it then, we believe in the already not yet, that that new creation, that kingdom of God that is to come is already broken into the present age. Just look at the day of Pentecost. These signs and these gifts that the Holy Spirit is pouring out on his people. We know that that means the kingdom of God is right here and right now, although we still look forward to it. That's the reality of the kingdom of God. It's the new creation that Jesus is forming through his bride. How does that relate to that Trinitarian concept of creation? Look at salvation. Look at the gospel, the new creation that I've just talked about. Who is the architect and the source and the planner? God the Father. Who is the one who carries it out? Jesus Christ, the Son. And who is the one that hovers over the deadness of sin? And prepares and energizes our hearts to receive the gospel. It's the Holy Spirit. Just like in creation, the Father is the planner, the, Jesus, uh, the Son, Jesus is the doer, and the Holy Spirit is the power by which it's done. So the gospel is Trinitarian in its scope and design. Now look down to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Just a few verses down. 
This is a very familiar verse. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or to the Gentile. This is because, or this reveals to us, secondly there, that the gospel is powerful. Because the gospel originates with God, because it is carried out by Jesus and empowered by the work of the Holy Spirit, this causes Paul later in verse 16 to say, I'm not ashamed of this gospel because it is powerful. In fact, we should, I should have changed that. It's not just powerful. It is the power unto salvation, Paul says. And we'll discuss this again later in this, uh, this how section. So we talk about salvation. There's no salvation outside of Christ. There's no salvation outside the church because the church belongs to Jesus Christ. There's no salvation outside of his gospel. Why? Because we did not invent it. It does not come from man. It comes from God, carried out by Jesus, empowered by the work of the Holy Spirit. So if this message belongs to God, if this message of the good news belongs to God, it's obvious along with our Great Commission reading tonight from Matthew chapter 28, it's obvious that the same mission and the same message comes to us by Jesus. So that this message of the gospel is God's mission. Not just his message, but his mission. What he started way back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, when he says, I'll put enmity between the woman and the serpent... And your seed and his seed, your seed shall bruise his heel, but her seed shall bruise your head. That little glimmer of hope that God shows us will come through the gospel. Through the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. He reveals it again in Genesis chapter 12 when he calls out to Abram. Abram who was wandering lost in a foreign pagan land. Not serving Yahweh, not serving God. And out of that pagan land God based on nothing but sheer grace and mercy, says, Abram, get up and go from your country and I will make you a great nation. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. Through you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And we obviously sing it when we're little. I, uh, Father Abraham had many sons. Father, many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them and so are you. So let's just sing this song, which seems like an odd response to the theological truth you've just sung, sang. But let's sing the song. The children of Abraham are not those who are merely Israelites by birth. That's made clear in the rest of Romans. The children of Abraham are you and me because we are in Jesus Christ. So those promises that God made from before time began, the promises that he made in Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 12 and through David and through Moses, they are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. So we see that God's message has been his mission the whole time. This good news that is for all the nations has been the driving force behind God's work in the world since before time began. The message of the gospel is also the mission of God. So clearly here, the mission we have is from God. So our first question, who, whose mission is it? Where does it come from? This mission is from God. Look at John chapter 20, just a few books uh, to the left. John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Again, Jesus has already died and been buried and risen again. And this is where he appears to his disciples in the upper room. John chapter 20, verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, Even so, I am sending you. Now what we have there when we see even so, it's one Greek word that literally means in the same way, in the same manner, after the same mode. It's not just, well, the Father sent me and kind of like that, I'm sending you. It's just as, even as the Father sent me, So I'm sending you. So in the same way, in the same manner as Jesus was directly and intentionally sent by the Father into the world, we are also sent by Jesus. Just like the Father sent me, so I am also sending you. 
This again is so Trinitarian. The, the Trinity is just wrapped all around every single doctrine of the scripture. And it should be. The Father sends the Son. The Son ascends back to the Father. And as proof that his work on the cross and resurrection was applied and, was, and satisfied the, wor- the wrath and the justice of God, the Holy Spirit comes. And Peter says that the Holy Spirit comes from the Father and the Son. That Jesus asked the Father and has poured out this which you now see and hear. So even this whole dimension of salvation is Trinitarian in its scope. The Father is the one planning, the Son is the one doing, the Spirit is the one empowering. The Father sends the Son, the Father and the Son send the Spirit, and the Son here sends the apostles. The word apostles literally means the sent ones. They are the sent, the ones going out into the world. And in that way, you and I are also apostles, not with a big A, but with a small A, meaning we have been sent by Jesus into the world in the same way that he was sent by the Father. We as the church then are sent with the same mandate, with the same mission and the same message. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're bouncing around tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Right there in the middle of it, verse 18. Second Corinthians 5, starting in verse 18, Paul says, All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul is very clear here. Just as God sent Jesus into the world to accomplish reconciliation, look at that Jesus accomplished it. He sends us into the world as his ambassadors to bring the message of reconciliation. That last part there, he sends us as his ambassadors who bring the message of reconciliation. So you see how we've been called into this task that is noble and great and beautiful and powerful. God could in and of himself have done everything that is necessary for the salvation of the world. He could have done everything. He could have said, I'm the father, I'm going to plan it. Jesus is going to do it. The Holy Spirit is going to apply it. I'm not going to use humanity at all but we see from the beginning that God has worked through his image bearers right to accomplish his purposes we talked with the youth a few weeks ago about how God not letting the world go he doesn't just let creation die but he also doesn't just zap it back to the way it should be he uses human partners to accomplish his will and it's a beautiful and a glorious thing that God does not have to do but chooses to out of grace and mercy he did it with Abraham, he did it with Moses, he did it with David and he's doing it with us he says you go and preach the gospel you go, Jesus accomplished reconciliation now you are the ambassadors that will bring the message of reconciliation it's the idea of a diplomat or a herald in this foreign country that would go before the king and declare the good news of his coming Jesus did it it is your job to say it so the mission and the message have been given to us it does not belong to us as if we invented it But it is ours because God gave it to us and said, you go. So the mission is from God, but the mission is to us. So when we ask the question, whose mission is it? It came from God and it's been given to us. So you can say, just like Jake and Elwood, we're on a mission from God. Nobody knows who Jake and Elwood are. The Blues Brothers. All right, yeah, we're on a mission from God. Hope that's not sacrilegious. Number two, the question is what? What is the content of this mission? Let's go back to Romans chapter one. I should have told you to keep your markers there because we're going to go back to Romans chapter one a few more times. 
So we've identified who our mission is from. We have identified who the mission is to. God is the originator of the mission and the message, and he has given it to us. Christ accomplished it. We've been given the message of it. We are the ones who say the thing, but the Holy Spirit who is the one who gives the power to the thing. Number one here, the person and work of Christ is the content of our mission. The person and the work of Christ is the content of our mission. The person and the work of Christ. If you look at Romans chapter 1 verse 3. The gospel of God promised beforehand through the prophets concerning or regarding his son. That's the content. There's nothing more, there's nothing less, there's nothing that needs to be added to or taken away from that message to make it the gospel. The gospel is God's and the gospel is about Jesus. Now let's do a little fun word stuff that I like and you don't, but since I'm preaching, I get to do it. And that is this Greek word for the word gospel, euangelion. Euangelion. And these words look a little bit, uh, you know, intense to look at, but when you break them down, they're a little easier. That's the combination of simply two words. The word you, meaning good, E-U, not Y-O-U, because you're not good. E-U is good. As in something is euphonious, it sounds good. Or something is euphoric, it feels good. You means good. Angelion, which you can see we get our word angel or messenger from, is the word news. So when someone speaks about the gospel, when I say the gospel, when you look at the New Testament Greek, it's the word euangelion, the good news or the good message. So the gospel is literally the good news. It is God's good news, and it is the good news about Jesus Christ. But we have a question here, don't we? I have good news for you. Okay. Did I, do I need some good news? Is, is there something that, that is antecedent to this good news? Why are you suddenly proclaiming good news to me? Because there is bad news. Paul jumps to it pretty quickly there in Romans chapter 1. Look at verse 18. Just one verse. There's good news, but then in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Very simply, the bad news is this, that God's wrath is and will be unleashed or revealed against sin. God's wrath is being unleashed against sin. Very quickly, in other words, the bad news is that we're sinful human beings. God is perfect and holy and righteous in his character and will not uh, stand sin forever. He will destroy it in wrath and in his judgment forever. And it's interesting that Paul, just in case his hearers begin to think of themselves as high and mighty. And let's just pause here and say a word about thinking of ourselves in a different way as we think about sinners in general. Christians have what we call pet sins or respectable sins. And as long as we're in that category of respectable sins, and those change by, you know, wherever you are in the United States, sometimes by cities. These are sins that are not indeed respectable or, or okay, but sins that we have deemed okay and respectable in our minds. And as long in our mind, as long as we stay in those respectable sins, we are so much better off than those people in those sins which we have deemed worse in God's eye. I don't have to look far in America to know that there are some sins that we think are so much worse than what we could ever do. How many of you ever thinking about alcoholism and some of you have experienced that in your families or you yourselves. But how many of us that haven't ever think they, them? Think about, think about racism. The sheer prejudice against someone else because of the color of their skin or the way they talk or where they're from. Even in our arguments about immigration, sometimes we fall into language of us and them. And we slap labels on people. They are 
illegals. You know how demeaning that is to someone? Have they broken the law? Yes. Does justice need to be done and reform need to be done? Absolutely. But to look at someone made in the image of God and say, you are illegal. Not you've done something illegal, but you yourself are illegal. You yourself are less than me because you look different and talk different. Don't you come near my family. Think about those in sexual sin. Just to prove my point, look at Romans chapter 1 again. Romans chapter 1, we love this one, don't we? Verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women, exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And all God's people said, Amen. We keep reading, though. Look at verse 29. All manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. We'd like to put a big old period right after verse 27, wouldn't we? Women exchanging relations with men to burn with passion for one another and women. And men exchanging natural relations with women to burn in passion for one another. And they receive in themselves the due penalty for their error. And I do say amen to that. And we agree with the Bible on sexuality and gender issues. But we cannot put a period there as if Paul does not go on to address us. Gossips. Slanderers. Disobedient to parents. Foolish. Boastful, covetous, angry, malicious, and the list goes on and on and on and on. Next time you ever think, I thank God I'm not like that person, immediately know that you are in the category of that Pharisee who stood in the temple and said, Oh God, I thank you that I am not like this tax collector. When in reality... You should pray that you would be in his position, falling before God and beating your chest and saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. That is our position before God. Look at Romans chapter 3. I'm not going to read this. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. I'm just simply going to go through the no ones and the no's here. So you can just follow along. What is the bad news according to Paul? No one is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned away, all are worthless, no one does good. Our throats are open open graves, our tongues lie, our words are like poison, our speech is full of curses and anger, we are violent people, we leave nothing but ruin and misery, we don't know the meaning of peace, and worst of all, no one fears God. Then Romans chapter 3 verse 23, from which we're all familiar All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that all means you. And it means me. We're all in the bad news together. We are utterly destitute. We are totally depraved. We are dead in our sins and our trespasses. We are filthy in the sight of God. Even our most righteous deeds, Isaiah says, are like filthy rags to God. We need resurrection. We need cleansing. We need salvation. That's the bad news. We're pretty bad off and God is perfect and will exact judgment on sin. But Paul doesn't end there. Romans chapter 3 verse 21. Thank God it keeps going. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So three very quick points on this topic of the good news that comes to us after that bad news. Here are your three points. What we have not, God gives us. God says, be perfect for I am perfect. Be holy for I am holy. But we can't do that. That's the bad news. But here, Paul says, what we have not, God gives us. Number two, what we are not, God makes us. And number three, what we cannot do, God does in Christ. What don't we have? Righteousness. What are we not? Righteous. What do we need? A savior. And God does it through Jesus Christ. So the bad news is sin and its effects. We're dead and we deserve the judgment of God. The good news is the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. Now if you remember from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you don't have to turn back there because everyone's going to know this verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21. That God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How is this possible? How is it possible that there is that bad of news that we cannot stand in the holy presence of God and he will exact his judgment on sin and we are dead in our sins and trespasses and destitute in our filthiness before God who is holy and majestic and glorious? How is there any good news in that? How would God, who is supposed to be just and holy and perfect, how could he reason it out to simply forgive sin? How in his holy imagination could he just simply say, it's okay, don't worry about it. That wouldn't be just at all, would it? If there was no punishment that was made. But that's why Paul says, Jesus Christ was sent to be the propitiation for our sins. The sacrifice that makes atonement, that's what propitiation means. It erases the sin. And then 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might receive the righteousness of God. This is what the reformers called the great exchange. The great exchange that Christ, or that God gives us in Christ, let me rephrase that, God gives Christ what we deserve. What do we deserve? Death, his judgment, His anger, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. Number three, God gives us what we could never deserve. God gives Christ what we deserve, and then he gives us what we could never deserve. What is that? Righteousness, holiness, salvation. If we omit the bad news, there is no good news left. If we omit sin from our message, if we omit hell and judgment from our message, if we omit warnings of God's judgment from our message, there's no salvation there. Salvation from what? There's no problem. We're all fine. You know, we're not perfect, but God will forgive us. And that reminds me of a survey that was done at a Christian booksellers conference. And one of the questions that was asked was, what is the gospel? Over which most of the people flubbered out some weird answers. But one question was asked, when you get to heaven, do you think God will adjust his holiness to accommodate your sinfulness? Do you think when you stand before God in judgment, he'll, he'll somehow lower his holiness to let you in? Is that how salvation works? That's how a lot of people think it works. God's merciful, God is love, God is holy. And when I get to heaven, although I've done a lot of bad things, he's loving and merciful and holy and he'll, he'll be fine and he'll forgive me. He'll, he'll lower his standards for me. There's nothing further from the gospel because there's no good news to be had there. The good news that comes right after that that says, but faith in Christ makes you righteous. If you think you are already righteous, guess what? Pharisee again. Jesus said, I didn't come to save those who are well, 
I came to save sinners. Those who beat their chest and say, have mercy upon me, a sinner. So the content of our message message is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's summed up nowhere more perfectly than in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul, of first importance that Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again. That's the gospel. Through belief in that, our sins are erased and we're made right with God. So number three, how? How is the mission accomplished? We've seen that the mission is from God. God is its author. God is its source. But it has been given to us. So that the mission is God's, but he has given it to us to be his ambassadors in the world. We've seen the content of that mission. The content is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, the good message that comes from God on the heels of that bad news that his wrath is coming against sin. We deliver the good news that salvation is available through Jesus Christ. So we ask the question now, how? How are we to be the ambassadors of this message? Just as it is God's message, just as it is God's mission, he is the sender We are the sent, and we come as people with a message to proclaim. Most of us understand what witnessing is. A lot of us don't understand what it actually does or why it's necessary. In fact, one theologian once said, very regrettably, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. That's the most idiotic statement that anyone can ever make. I see it on church signs. I want to go kick them down. There's, there's no proclamation of good news if there's no one saying it. That's what Paul means. Turn to Romans chapter 10. Many churches today, more liberal churches, are involved in what we call mercy ministries, meeting people's felt needs. Um... Uh, whether they're medical or material, clothing or food or um, shelters for the homeless and things like this. And don't get me wrong, these things are not bad. In fact, they are good. And Bible-believing churches should be involved in them. But here's where we go astray with social work and mercy ministries and meeting people's felt needs. If that is the end in and of itself... I heard one gentleman who I was in a seminary class with, believe it or not, tell me that giving a cold glass of water to someone who is hot and homeless is the gospel. I looked at him and said, I think you're crazy. That's That's not the gospel. That can be a bridge to the gospel. But if you simply stop there, there's no good news in that. They have water for a day. They're comforted for a day. They have shelter for a day. Their felt needs are met for a day or for a time or an hour or a minute. But then what after? What of their soul that goes on into eternity? Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 11. For the scripture says, everyone who who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's good news. Paul tells us how it's done. Verse 14. So how will they call on him? They have to call on him to be saved. How will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. First of all, very simply here, there must be hearing for there to be saving faith. You are doing a bit of good for someone if you meet a material physical felt need and indeed as the church we have been called to do that by Jesus himself to show mercy to those who are in need 
But we don't stop there. The message of the gospel must be heard in order for it to save. And in order for it to be heard, it must be preached or just simply proclaimed. We see the word preach and we immediately think preacher like what I'm doing here. But you are proclaimers of the gospel. And you have to proclaim it in order for people to hear it and believe it and call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Let's look at these diagrams I've given you, I've given you these two models of the church. This is the first model I want us to look at. When some churches think of their mission and their ministry and their philosophy, this is how they think of it. We have the building, we have the church, okay, the church. And our idea is, if we just do enough nice things for people, if we just have a good enough music program, if we tickle the ears of a certain demographic or a certain generation or a certain group of people or a subculture of people, they'll, they'll be attracted to the church. If we just change the way preaching is done, not so didactic and I'm talking to you, but maybe let's make a, a discussion. You know, because that's how God talked to Moses. It was you know, on the Ten Commandments. He asked Moses for his opinion. Let's just change the things we do and the way we do it to accommodate lost people. Hear me when I say this first and foremost, that we are to reach the lost. And the church is here to minister to the lost as part of their mission. But when we make the corporate regular gathering of the church primarily for evangelism of lost people primarily for evangelism of lost people, we've lost our mission. One famous pastor in North Carolina, you might have heard of him, Stephen Furtick of the Elevation Church, which is insanely humongous and spreading all around that area. He and a group of others have said that their ministry is not to the people of God. In fact, he's quoted as saying, once you get saved and you're in this church, I'm no longer your pastor and I no longer care about you. I'm here for the lost people. And on the surface, that sounds great, doesn't it? We're not here to meet your saved people's preferences and needs. We're here to serve and get the lost in. What is, but what does he do when Jesus tells Peter, feed my sheep, shepherd the flock of God? This model of church ministry is what is most prominent in America today. It's been called seeker-sensitive. It's been called many things. But the whole idea is, if we can just become attractive enough, if we can put out the right bait, the lost will come, and then we'll switch it out for the gospel, and hopefully they'll bite and they'll be saved. Can they be saved that way? Absolutely. Is that what God has told us to do? I don't think so. Look at this second model of the church. Confusing arrows, but they're confusing for a reason. What did Jesus tell the disciples on that mountain? Go. Every single instance of the Great Commission has the word, you go do something out there. Jesus does not get up on the mountain and get a loudspeaker and say to the congregation or the multitudes, hey, the disciples are about to put on a really great show and they got great music and a great speaker and lots of good things going on down there at the first Jerusalem church or whatever. You ought to go check it out. You know, it's so relevant and real and relational or whatever people say. He says, go. Paul's very clear in Romans chapter three, isn't he? No one seeks God. The lost have no interest in the gospel. The lost have no interest in a church. In sitting and listening to preaching. It's like, it's like putting medicine in someone who's terminally ill at the very last point. Jesus tells the church to go. Make disciples. But then you see the arrows coming back in, don't you? The church is going out and making disciples. But they're also going out, reaching the lost. And how do they come back in? By the people going out. That's exactly what Jesus has called us to do. The effectiveness of this program, the effectiveness of this program right here does not rest on human imagination. It does not rest on our music program. It does not 
rest on our preacher's speaking ability. It does not rest in the niceness of our facilities or the programs we offer or the events we host or the activities we have or the concerts we put on or the fellowship we have or the Sunday school teachers we have or the curriculum we use or the books we use or how pretty our windows are or how nice anything is in this facility or with this church. In this program, the power for church growth is in the proclamation of the word and the proclamation of the gospel. And we simply throw our hands up and say, God, there's nothing we can do here that will attract lost people. It must be the gospel that resurrects people from the dead, that gives them a hunger for the word of God where they never had it before. It gives them a hunger to be with the people of God where they've never known that hunger before. It gives them a love for people with whom they've never loved or with whom they never even had anything in common. But now suddenly in Christ, we're made one new man through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The power at work in this program is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit preaching through the proclamation of the gospel. Remember Romans chapter 1? The gospel is God's gospel. Remember Romans chapter 1 verse 16? The power for salvation is what? The gospel. No event, no programs, no activities can substitute for the power of the gospel. In planning this message, I came back to this... um, this point, and I changed my mind about what to call it. I actually had first called it, how do we accomplish this mission? And when I started working on this point, I thought, that is not right. How do we accomplish this mission? I just reworded it, how is the mission accomplished? Remember when we talked about the Lord's Supper a few weeks ago from 1 Corinthians, we were talking about the divisions that were in the church, and some said, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, I'm of Paul, I'm this, I'm this, I was baptized by him, I was saved under him, and I believe this, and I believe this. And Paul said, Paul is nothing. Apollos is nothing. Apollos planted, I watered, someone sowed the seed of the gospel, What does he say? It is God who gives the growth. The work of growing the church is not ours. It's God's. What did Jesus say? Matthew chapter 16, when Peter said, I believe you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I say to you, Peter, you are a rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. Isn't that interesting? He just called Peter the rock, but then he turns around and says, I will build my church. Ephesians chapter 2, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, but the cornerstone is Jesus Christ. So in all of our attempts to find a philosophy for church growth and to get lost people saved and to reach out, we have to understand at the end of the day that the power is not and cannot ever be ours or our programs or anything else. The gospel and the gospel alone is the power of God unto salvation. And Jesus says, I will build my church. John chapter 6 verse 44 Let this just sink into your brains and your hearts. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Well, I'm confused. Jesus has just got done saying, come, everybody, whoever, come. But you can't come unless the Father who sent me draws you. And whose job is that drawing? The Holy Spirit. That's what Peter said in Acts chapter 2. That's exactly what happened there. He's preaching the gospel and the Holy Spirit cuts to the heart of the people listening. And it makes them say, what shall we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all those who are far off, whomever the Lord God calls to himself. 
So, if these words are true, God is sovereign. God must do the drawing. The Holy Spirit is the power. Why do we do anything? Why, why, do, why do we need the witness? Why, why evangelism? Why missions? If God's got the whole world in his hands and he's sovereign and he's in control, why do anything? Very simply, that next point there, we are human instruments to serve God's purposes. Number two, he doesn't have to use us, but he graciously chooses to. We're simply called to obey. This should not be a scary thought to you. Even if we don't agree on some of the minutiae here, the theological details, this should not be a scary thought that Jesus says, come, but you can't come unless the Father draws you, and the Holy Spirit is the one who is doing that. Look at the comfort that that gives to us as Christians. What kind of power and boldness that should give us to proclaim the gospel. That the power is not ours. We can't be good enough speakers or good enough arguers or good enough debaters or good enough philosophers or good enough anything to attract people to Jesus. All we have to do is open our mouths and say, you are a sinner and I'm a sinner and we need a savior. And God sent him him in the person of Jesus Christ. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross. He was buried. He rose again on the third day and he's coming back. And if you will simply put your faith in trust in him and repent of the way you're going right now, God will save you with no conditions and with no exceptions. What kind of boldness does that give you to know that in that message and in that message alone, the power of the Holy Spirit is at work. And God says in Hebrews chapter 4, my word will not go out and return to me void. It is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and it will do the thing that I've sent it out to do. It will accomplish the purpose I've sent it out to do. You're just to take the bag of seed and to indiscriminately scatter it. You're not trying to figure out the divine mysteries of God's will. You're not trying to figure out the secret things that belong only to God. Deuteronomy 29, 29. All you're doing is taking that seed that you've been given by the grace of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and going in the highways and the hedges, as the song says, and indiscriminately, the reformers called it promiscuously, which is an interesting word, promiscuously scattering that seed. Scattering it. You can't determine the soil. You can't determine where it lands. You can't change people's hearts. That's not your job. Your job is simply to go and scatter the seed. Three, the power to accomplish this mission is not yours, but God's. Lastly tonight, his commission to the church is simple. Go. Our mission is equally simple. Go. Go with God's command. Go with God's power. Go with God's gospel. Is anybody in here familiar with lighthouses? I mean... You have a thing for lighthouses. <laughs> you go see them and you paint them and draw them. I don't know. People do weird things with stuff sometimes. Lighthouses. You can tell me if this is wrong or not, but according to the writer of this hymn, around big lighthouses, there used to be other smaller lighthouses along the, the, the banks of the, the coast. And they would call them the lower lights. There's the big lighthouse Everything is being drawn to. But if if that lighthouse loses its light or there's a massive cloud in front of it or something happens to that lighthouse, those lower lights can point the way if needed. And they're always there guiding them to the harbor. They're not the lighthouse. They're not the primary light. They're not the destination. They're just there to light the way. One writer of a hymn latched on to this idea of the lower lights And he wrote this song. Brightly beams our Father's mercy from the lighthouse evermore. But to us, he gives the keeping of the lights along the shore. Dark the night of sin has settled, loud the angry billows roar. 
Eager eyes are watching, longing for the lights along the shore. Trim your feeble lamp, my brother. Some poor sailor, tempest-tossed, trying now to make the harbor in the darkness may be lost. Let the lower lights be burning. Send a gleam across the wave. Some poor struggling, fainting sailor, you may rescue, you may save. That's our charge. We're the lower lights along the shore, pointing people to the lighthouse that is Jesus. That's all for this edition of Living Faith. Stay connected to the teaching and preaching ministry of First Baptist Church by subscribing to this weekly podcast using your computer or mobile device. First Baptist Church is located at 100 North Lake Avenue in Avon Park, Florida. We meet every Sunday for worship at 1045 a.m. and 6 o'clock p.m. We invite you to join us if you don't currently have a church home and are looking for a place where the Word of God is proclaimed with power and clarity. You can find access to all of this and much more by visiting our website at fbcap.net. We look forward to connecting with you. Until then, this is Living Faith.